If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll read a brief portion of Scripture there. Then I need you to turn to John chapter 14. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We're going to spend the majority of our time on that phrase, spiritual sacrifices, today. But before we do so, I'd like to remind you what we talked about yesterday. Yesterday, we we visited the patriarchal priesthood, and we uh, stopped on that stroll at the place of Noah, and he had built an altar. We stopped at the tent of Abraham, and he had built multiple altars. We stopped at the residence of Jacob, and he had built an altar, as well as his father Isaac. And we began to realize that something that's quite important in the function of a priest, at least an Old Testament patriarchal priest, has to deal with devotion. And never more clearly did that come out for us than in Genesis chapter 2, when the prized possession of Abraham's apple of his eye was put on an altar. Of course, that bespeaks to us, right? It, it, it tells us a couple of things, that, that devotion to Christ is by far and away the most important thing. Not so much activity, not so much uh, uh, bushels of fruit as it is devotion, devotion. It's used, it's stated in several ways in the Old Testament, usually using the terminology of a broken and contrite heart. This I will not despise. Then we visited another patriarchal activity of a priest, and that was prayer, as illustrated to us in the life of Job. Now, I wanted to read a verse in John chapter 14, that um, gives me a chance just to talk a little bit more about prayer. I felt like I did a poor job on speaking about prayer. I'm just excited about prayer, but let's read John chapter 14. <clears throat> Verse 13. And uh, I'm sorry, how, Verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That verse is the verse, that is verse 13, That changed our assembly. Many things changed our assembly. Many things changed our assembly, but this one was one of those things. Because as I looked at our assembly and its its decay, you have to understand, just before we came, there was so much turmoil that there was public accusation of mishandling of funds and the breaking of the bread. Isn't that pleasant? Isn't that nice? You go to somebody's wedding and you break out a fight. Isn't that beautiful? No, that's, a, that's, a tro- that's an atrocity. And, there, and this is what we were doing, you see. And it was so disturbing. 
I remember reading that verse right there. And, I, and, and it said this, believe, ask, I will do. And it was as if, it was if an epiphany, a light bulb went on. And, and it was this, all you want me to do is ask, that's it, that's all I've got to do. Then I'll ask till I die. I'll ask you every time I see you. I'll ask you every time I open my eyes and every time I close them. I'll ask you till you get tired of me asking. I can do that. And that's what we did. We asked. Never more clearly, I have so many stories about prayer that actually was answered in our meeting. I'm overwhelmed at what God has done by this verse alone. I'll try to, I'll give you two real briefly. We had an outreach. We went to the Neighborhoods around us, they're apartment complexes, and we, put, we, asked door, we asked to pass out door hangers. This particular day, it was uh, quite uh, uh, hot, and, and I was with this brother, Rodney. Rodney is a deacon in our meeting today. He's a fine gentleman. We went to this uh, apartment complex, and the manager there, we went to her first, and we said, we're from the Bible Chapel of Shawnee, and we just want to pass out these little door hangers, inviting people to our, our kids to our uh, vacation Bible school. May we have your permission? She said, no, you can't. I said, oh, I, I'm so sorry. What, what would be the problem? And she said, well, you see, it's private property, and the managers here don't want any of that kind of solicitation to their, to their customers, and so we can't do that. Oh, I understand. We understand. Listen, just in case you ever wonder what we're about, here's a little thing. Here's some information, and it had some gospel literature in it. And she says, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I am the apartment manager here. Yes, ma'am, you are. And I, you, know, you know what tomorrow is? Saturday, ma'am. Yes, it's Saturday, but it's, it's the day rent is due. Why don't you leave your little stack of stuff on my desk? I'll pass them out for you because everybody has to come by my desk tomorrow and pay rent. We were done in 10 minutes with our portion of the outreach. We're back there sipping lemonade. Everybody else, we had to carry them in on stretchers. Week goes by. Wednesday comes. The 16-year-old man gets up in prayer meeting. This is what he does. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you that you would send kids to our vacation Bible school. Father, we are asking you to bring in the lost. And as soon as he said that, my phone rings. I take the call. I didn't recognize the number. I go out to the lobby. Guess who it is? The apartment manager. This is how it goes. I'm so sorry to bother you. I'm sure you're having some kind of meeting. But I have 15 kids that want to come to your vacation Bible school, and all the parents want to know if you can pick them up. At that moment, everything went into slow motion. I said, yes, ma'am, we'll be by to pick him up. And I walked into the meeting. That 16-year-old man who was my son sat down and said, amen. I said, saints, you'll never guess what just happened. As far as I know in the biblical record, there's only one other record where the answer to prayer shows up at the prayer meeting. That was with Peter, you know, the whole church making prayer for his release. And I said, and it happened tonight, except it was by telephone, not actually physically. And as we were praying, the Lord answered that prayer. You know, that work, that kid's work that was answered that night, that momentum of all those children went on for five years, right? So we think in our 
little realm of existence that we, can, we cannot afford not to pray, right? You want to hear another one? Just, I know I'm, I'm messing up my time. I got to give you one more, all right? So we go out to Walmart. We're going to do an outreach at Walmart. This was interesting because I went into the Walmart manager and I said, I know it's a little late notice, but we'd like to set up a table outside your door. They'll let us do that, like we're the Boy Scouts or something. And, and, they see, and just so happened this day was the fill-in manager. And we had this little thing, a magnet for the refrigerator that says, need, uh, need prayer, we care, right? Kind of catchy, sort of cliche-ish and salesman-like, but we used it. And so uh, I handed it to her and, I said, and she said, oh, you know, normally we need, you know, several months reservation. And I go, yes, I, I know thinking I asked my family to pray before I left the house. And she goes, hmm, need, need prayer, we care. I think we need a whole lot more of that, don't you? Yes, ma'am, I do. Let me see what I can do for you. Ten minutes later, she comes back out. She says, Saturday, you got a spot. I said, fantastic. Right? So we go there Saturday morning. There's two doors to Walmart. One on the east, or north, and one on the south. And we have the south entrance. And we start to go over there, and there's too many of us crowding the door. Nobody wants to take any of our material. We're just passing it out. That's all it is. And so I said to the group, listen, why don't you stay here? And I'll walk, and I'll pray all the time you're working. And that's all I did. I walked from door to door to door, and I would pray. And I would see people come in, and I would pray for them and ask the Lord to send them through our door. And after, after about an hour, I look over at our group, and they're emptying out our boxes left and right. I walk over to them, and I say, and actually, the, one of the guys that was there was Heather's dad. Your dad was there. I said to Robert, Robert, how's it going? Keep praying. We're emptying our boxes. Get out of here. So I keep walking down. I pray. I go down to the Boy Scout door, and I lean against where the Boy Scouts are, and I'm watching everything. And, I, and this is this guy, literally this guy, walking down the middle of the Walmart parking lot. And I ask the Lord, Lord, would you send him through our door? And I watch this guy take a step towards the Boy Scouts, and in mid-position goes right to our door. I said, Lord, that was impressive. Do that again. Do that again. <laughs> and so I leave. This is all true. I lean against the wall, and I'm praying that the Lord would continue to work. And this fellow comes up to the Boy Scout door. I didn't see him, or I would ask him to go through our door, too. And he walks up, and he says, Hey, guys, how's it going here at the Boy Scout table? And all the Boy Scouts say, It's kind of slow today. And I'm thinking, That's because they're all in our door, is he? I tell you that because I believe with all of my heart that we should take verse 13 literally. And when we sit here like this morning and our brother prayed for revival, I think that's doing greater works than these. And I think asking God to take an assembly that has a name that's it's alive but is dead and bring it to life, that's doing greater works than these. And I think when we ask the Lord to intervene in marriages that are going to crumble or have crumbled, I think that's greater works than these. And I think my Father in heaven would agree with that. And I would ask you to join me to be a priest that prays. The only thing that we missed yesterday that I wanted to say was Job did it consistently. And this he did regularly. See, I, I, there's many things to encourage a prayer meeting. Some say, well, you know, Nobody really wants to come and pray. You know what you do? You, then you, you, you go 
and you go to their house and you sit down and say, you know, I've been praying for the assembly lately and I realize that I've been praying for you. I have no idea how I can effectively pray for you before the throne of grace. And so I've come today just to ask you, how might I pray for you today? And if with your permission and all confidentiality preserved, I'm just going to write that down and make a commitment to pray for you. And you know what happens? When you do that consistently, that person that you're visiting, whom you're praying for and praying with, all of a sudden they kind of say, you know, this is, this is really interesting. We can communicate with God so, so naturally. I said, yeah, we do it every week, in fact. Why don't you come? Right? We did all kinds of things. We'd feed everybody. The young people love to eat, in case you didn't notice. And they get hungry a lot earlier than the rest of us. So we'd have food. And I would go to them and I'd say, hey, you guys ever hungry? Yeah, yeah, we're hungry all the time, Mr. Steve. Yeah, really? I didn't know that. I said, I said, you know, don't you like it if you could actually eat home-cooked food and not have to do the dishes? Yeah, yeah, I like that, Ricky. Yeah. And guess what? Might as well stay for prayer meeting. You ate the food anyway. It happens right after we eat. We did that, all that stuff. We, we would teach our children to pray at the breakfast table. I'll never forget. I asked Michael to pray. Michael, before you pray, I want you to remember this. If you don't get to the point, little Gracie's going to be sprawled out on the floor in 30 seconds. <laughs> Did that for a while. I said, Michael, before you go on, I want you to remember, Grandpa has a hearing aid. He's got three of them and uses two. I want you to know this. If you don't speak loud enough to part his hair, he's not going to know when to open his eyes. So pray loud. Right? And we did all that at the breakfast table. And he would pray at the breakfast table for so long. I said, Michael, I have a question for you. He says, what's that, Dad? I said, what's the difference between praying here at this table and praying at the chapel? Uh, I love that answer from the kids. Uh, that's, your, that's your moment to fill in the blank. And I say, location. The only difference is location. Because what you're doing here is exactly what you do there. Why don't you try that sometime? And guess what he did? He tried it. Went pretty well. I said to him next, hey, why don't you take a, make, make a list of what people are praying about while, you, while people are praying so you can kind of help you pay attention. Good idea, Dad. Next thing I know, he gets up, next prayer meeting, whips out the list from the week before, and he goes like this, Heavenly Father, we'd like to pray for the situation in Africa. I'm going, man, I forgot about that one. All kinds of things. It's not so much gimmicks. It's lifestyle lifestyle. Okay. I've wasted my time there. It's not really a waste of time, but we have to move on. All right. Turn to Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read to you about Melchizedek. He is another of the patriarchal priestly order. Now, Melchizedek is a very unique person in the biblical record. I want to begin reading in verse 17, if you would pardon the speed that we'll try to travel. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedolomar. It took me 35 years to say Kedolomar, so I'm going to say it a lot. Kedolomar. From the defeat of Kedolomar and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of, Solom, or excuse me, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, that's Abraham, or Abram in this text, and said, Blessed be God, the most high, God of Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
and blessed and who was who has delivered excuse me and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and he gave him a tenth of all now the king of Sodom said to Abram give me the persons and take the goods for yourself but Abram said to the king of Sodom I have raised my hand to the Lord no, excuse me to the Lord God most high the possessor of heaven and earth that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Now, why do I read this? Well, first of all, you have to understand Melchizedek from a theological perspective is definitely a, a uh, foreshadowing picture type, uh, type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why we know that is because the writer of Hebrews said so. And that's in Hebrews chapter 7, spanning roughly verses 1 through 8, but mostly verses 1 through 2. And in that passage, you have Melchizedek presenting us the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, that's how he is. If you notice, he has the title as the King of Salem and, the king, uh, and, and king of Righteousness. Those are titles, King of Peace and King of Righteousness. Those are titles that the Lord Jesus has. Those are his titles. And so thus, we see the connection. He not only presents us Christ, he, he pictures Christ. If you look backwards, which we will in just a minute, you'll see how there's a unique reference to bread and wine. Very unusual. There's lots of things to eat back then. Bread and wine is mentioned. And then, of course, there's this whole idea of the power of Christ that he represents. Remember that it says the biblical record, the writer of Hebrews says about the biblical record, that really there's no, no beginning of days or end of life. As far as we can tell from the record before us, it appears that he has an endless life. And he says that's exactly the power of Christ. You see, he has an eternal priesthood, meaning this, that because he does not die, he can forever administrate how the priesthood should be administered. And thus, he has an eternality to it. He has a continuation, and it even says that later in the chapter, by the power of an indestructible life. I love that phrase. The power of an indestructible life. Think about it. If you could remain king forever on your throne, you could always make sure that your policies and procedures were eternally followed because you were there to make sure it happened. And this is what he's saying. Because he has an endless life, he's always there to make sure that the sacrifice really does stick because his life, his resurrected life, shows and verifies the, uh, the quality and the veracity of what's been done. It's really beautiful. And of course, he proclaims Christ just by his presence. But what I want to do this moment is I want you to go back to Genesis and we're going to look at this picture. Now, if you recall, the context of Genesis chapter 14 was this battle. Five kings came, or four kings, what was it? Five or four? I know, it was four against five, I think. Four against five. Four came from Mesopotamia region, and they, they fought against five kings of the Jordani or the uh, Rift Valley region, and they were successful. And part of that whole event was Lot was captured. And as you recall, there was somebody who escaped and told Abram what to do, or excuse me, told Abram what had happened. Now, in the text, Abram did not flinch. He did not say, well, you know, that, that Lot, he kind of took the best of the land. He's kind of getting what he deserves. See, we do that to each other, don't we? Well, they kind of ruined me, and I'm, they're getting what they deserve. Praise God. What are you thinking? That's not how it works. Abram doesn't even, even stop. He, he takes the best of his men, 318 gentlemen, born in his own house. Now, you think about this. 
If they're an average family like ours, 318, all brothers and sisters, you're probably talking about a size of a community of two to 3,000 people. And you take the best of your, your ranching operation and you go rescue some little scoundrel nephew who basically wanted to, uh, to, to, to live in, in areas that God d- despised? I just, call, I just call it cost of doing business and let Lot go. But you know, that's not, that's not how it worked. Abram wasn't actually depending on Lot's decision or lack of decision to fulfill the promise of God. Abram was depending upon God to fulfill the promise of God. And so he goes after him, and it's a night, it's a night, it's a, it's a, 24-hour march. It's a night assault. It's an incredible military exploit using only 318 men against those four kings, and he defeats them. They're bringing home. They're bringing all, everybody back, the goods, the people, the king, king of Sodom, in fact, and they probably went down this, the ridge, uh, the central ridge spine of the uh, Israeli geography, and that actually just goes right across this place called Salem, today called uh, Jerusalem or Jerusalem. And so uh, at that point, the king of this little community comes out, Melchizedek. Now notice he brings to him nourishment, bread and wine. We just read that. And I, and I realize that it would be a, a, a potential leap of interpretation, of hermeneutical uh, interpretation to say, ah, see, he's representing Christ by the bread and wine. But nonetheless, it's true. Bread and wine has certain relevancy in the New Testament, doesn't it? Right? And I would say that it's not actually a stretch to suggest that in that moment, he's bringing the sustenance that a man would need. And what do we need to do as priests to God? When we bring, when we bring people what, what, what they're longing for, what they're hungry for, night assault, big mission, successful expedition, what, what do they need most? They need to see, see and hear Christ again. Let me put it this way. When I was a young man, I was in the Emmaus Bible Chapel. And uh, one of the elders, he was George Nelson. His daughter actually uh, went out back many years ago, was a student at Biola. And so George Nelson, Mr. Nelson, we call him, he said to me one day, Steve, we want to do a little Christmas program because many come in, they, don't, they will hear the gospel. And, uh, and so I was thinking maybe we could do this and this, and I'd like you to help here. And, you know, being young and, and energetic, I said, wow, that sounds great. If, I could, if, if we could add to it this, this, and this, and we could, it, would, it would make a better scene. What do you think? And he says, you know, that's a good idea. But you see, I find that the more things we have on the stage, the more people pay attention to those things, and they don't listen to Christ, the message. So if it's okay with you, can we not do those complicated things and keep it really simple? You know, I, was, I think I was 12 years old. I said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea to me, right? You know what he was doing? He was schooling me. And he was saying, about all the things we do in life, as our function of priests, we want to leave the final image, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Melchizedek was doing. He was bringing Christ to, uh, as a picture of Christ, as it were, to Abraham in those, symbol, in, in those symbols there. Now, did Abraham understand that? I don't know. But for me today, the believer in my dispensation, I can see that. But what happened there was unique. He said to him, he said, uh, Abram, I want to remind you of something. And you can read it again. He says, uh, uh, blessed be Abram, God of most high, possessor of heaven and earth. All right, now, I have to flip my page over, but if you were to turn to our look down at verse th- tw- uh, 22, look at what it says there. I have raised my hand. What does that mean? Abram's talking now. What's, what's it mean when you raise your hand? He's taking an oath. 
you know, put your hand on the Bible, raise your right hand, you swear, blah, 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 blah. Okay? He said, I've taken an oath. And the oath is, and then he quotes what Melchizedek just said. Right? Look at possessor of heaven and earth. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, this mysterious Melchizedek guy, he came and he reminded me of something. He reminded me of the word of God. And he reminded me that the promise that I have from God is that he will make me rich. Now notice what Sodom, the king of Sodom said in the previous verse. You take the persons, no, excuse me, you take the goods and I'll keep the people. Now, if he kept the people, who would he kept? Whom would he have kept? Lot. Wasn't the whole mission about Lot? So at this moment, He puts his whole ranching operation and the best men he has at harm's way. He wins the battle. He comes back. And you know when the the hardest battle is in the Christian fight? It's just after the last successful battle. That's the real tough one. When the king of Sodom comes along and he says, Hey, hey, let me talk to you for a minute. I have a little proposal for you. You take the goods and I take the people. No problem, right? Is that what he does? No, see, that's that's the wrong thing. And the Melchizedek comes in at just the right moment and he gives them just the right portion of the just the right promise of the, of the word of God. And so much so that it struck a harmonious chord in the heart of Abraham so that when the king of Sodom made this lucrative offer, he said, thank you, but I'm not siding with you. I'm siding with the God who said he'll, he'll make his promise good to me so that you, Mr. King of Sodom, could never say you've made Abraham rich, meaning this. Therefore, only God, only the one who made the promise, could get all the glory. Isn't that beautiful? This is what Melchizedek was doing to this man of God. What do you think we should be doing as priests in the New Testament? Well, it's that we, we, we have the word of God, you see, and, and we want to take that word and we impart it to one another in such a fashion and in such a way so that it meets the need at just the right hour for just the right moment. And how do you do that? Well, that means that each of us have to be fulfilling some of those pr- pr- terms of the new covenant where it says this, no longer will one say to another, know the Lord, for all will know me, meaning that we all have the Spirit of God who teaches us individually, and as each one of us is walking in the Spirit with a clear conscience before the living God, that means that we would able, be able to serve the bread and serve the wine, the nourishment of the soul to those who are in need. And that requires each one of us to be personally involved in the relationship which we have with the Savior, not by token and not by uh, uh, laterality. What do I mean by laterality or osmosis? Well, let me describe it to you. How many of you spent your summers at camp? Anybody served at camp? You know, I've, I've, I lived many of my years at camp, six in fact. And I found that I can maintain a level of some type of spiritualness and never have devotions once during the summer. Did you ever try that? It's stupid. Don't do it. Right? But you know what I was living on? I was living on everybody else's devotions with the Savior and their fellowship with the Savior. I was borrowing and stealing from and using that to maintain my spiritual vitality. You know, we call that, right? Insanity. That doesn't work. You will eventually take a nosedive and boy, it will hurt. You see? That's not it. The way that we're able to do the Melchizedek practice of priestly order is that you and I are each of us individually occupied with the Savior. I know it sounds so remedial, so basic, but is it now that basic? 
Is it, is it that if it's so basic, then it should be basically practiced? But it doesn't happen like that, does it? I know. My shift starts at 6 a.m., which means usually <laughs> I get about five hours of sleep that night, and I'm just like anybody else. I want to get up at the very last minute, and I've got it down to the dot because there's nothing worse than driving into work when the city is still pitch black, right? And I say to myself, well, I'll get to the hospital. It'll be slow. I'll have my quiet time then. Yeah, that happens. 6.05, first patient having a huge MI. I cannot go back to the back room and have coffee. I got to like take care of the problem, right? I know how that works. I understand it all. But still, it requires us to be those kinds of priests like Melchizedek who have the word of God ready on our souls because that next soul you might come across might be the very one that needs to hear the promise of God in heaven. It was a Sunday that I was working. It was a day shift. I hate working day shifts on Sundays. I'd like to be at the meeting. I volunteer to work all evenings on the weekends, therefore I could be at the meeting on Sunday. This lady came in. She was an African-American. She was in bed eight in my ER. She had just left her, her services at the Baptist church nearby the hospital, and she was having some sort of indigestion. And She sat down across from me. She was a very nice lady. And as we talked, I, I, I gathered that she was a believer, so I asked her. And she says, yes, Dr. Price, I'm a believer. And we talked a little bit about what that meant. I said, well, why don't we order a few tests, and we'll see what it shows up, and I'll come back and chat with you. So the tests were all done. A couple hours later, I went in. I sat down next to her, and I said, ma'am, I want you to know all the tests look good today. I can't find anything wrong. Oh, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. I said, you know, but there's one thing I think I can do for you that will help you more than any, any medication I can give you today. She says, Dr. Pross, what, what's the, what, what would be that medication? I said, well, it's actually not a pill. It's a prayer. And I'd like to pray with you. So we bow our heads and I pray and I ask the Lord's blessing on her and her strength and grace. And I don't know, it was probably just a short prayer. And after we got done, she grabbed my hand. She leaned over threw her arms around me. I think she even kissed my cheek. That's not good in medicine. You know, never want to be caught doing that. <laughs> kissed my cheek, said, Dr. Price, this is the best I've felt in a long time. I said, me too, sister. Me too. I was practicing Genesis 14. That's what I was doing. All right, let's move on. Before we move on, I got to find the watch, which is not friendly. Okay. I think I have every bit of 9.5 minutes. I want to turn your attention to the sacrifices. Now, we're going to uh, uh, refocus our look not at Melchizedekian priestly order. We're going to look at Levitical priestly order. And this will really take the rest of our time today and tomorrow. And then on Saturday, Lord willing, we'll look at the Lord Jesus and his priestly activity. Now, when we talk about the uh, Levitical priestly order, it would truly take quite a while to outline everything they did and its implications for the New Testament priests. So I've selected just a few things to talk about. And one of the first things that the priest had to do was he had to handle sacrifices. Now, I would have you turn to Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, but it's kind of an exhaustive portion to read, so we won't read that. And I might add, it can be boring if you're not awake and didn't have your coffee. However, you need to know a couple of things about the sacrifices. If you were a priest like Aaron, 
you would need to know which animals were for which particular sacrifices. You recall, there's many type of offerings. There's the burnt offering. There's the grain offering. There's the peace offering. There's the sin offering. There's the trespass offering. There are the offerings that were made morning and evening. There are the offerings that were made on each of those major feasts of Jehovah. There are the offerings that were, that were made on the special days, such as the, the Day of Atonement. There was a certain protocol that you would have. There's a certain way you'd go about it. There's a certain way you would cut up the animal certain way you would divide up proportions. Some of it would go to feed the priestly family. Some of it would not. You would need to know where to put the blood. You would need to know how many times you go into the Holy of Holies. You would need to know where you put the blood on on and before the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, this was kind of a complex and detailed system or or a, a system of sacrifices, right? You would need to know these things and, and you would have to have them very clearly in your mind's eye. I, I, I liken it to uh, 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 to uh, when, when we were in train, I was in training. I, I had to know certain dosages, and you should be able to call me in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. and wake me up. What's the dose of Tylenol for a 20 kilo kid? And I'd be able to give it like that and go right back to sleep. That was the key. You know, you'd have to know these type of things. You can't make a mistake. I mean, Nadab and Abihu made one mistake; it cost their lives, right? You'd have to know what portions you could get out, uh, uh, for, you know, should, can they be boiled or, or, or fried or, or roasted or what? I mean, this is complex. You had to know the sacrificial system like the back of your hand, right? Would you agree with me? Yes, thank you. All right. Now, by implication then, I think it's important that you and I in the New Testament understand the spiritual sacrifices that are germane to the New Testament priest. Now, one of those, it says, and back, uh, uh, back in Peter, it simply uses a broad term or a broad phrase, spiritual sacrifices. Well, what are those? What does that mean, spiritual sacrifices? Obviously, spiritual is, is stated in contradistinction to physical something that has an intangible or invisible quality to it. You know, it's, it's, it's not something that we go to Walmart and say, I'd like some spiritual sacrifices in a 10-pound bag today. Do you have a special? You don't do that, right? Spiritual sacrifices are wrought in spirit, with spiritual mechanisms, right? And, what is, what, and, and who presides over spiritual mechanisms? The Spirit of God. So when we say it like that, then we need to think about things. So do you remember this verse in, in uh, Matthew? I'll, let's just turn to it. It's uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift before the altar and go your way. Many of us stop right there. We'll, we'll just end the text. All right? Oh, I have something against my brother. I'm just going to go ahead and leave, and that'll be fine. I fulfilled the text. Well, no, 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 no. We've got to read on. You see, first be reconciled to your brother, and then return and offer your gift. There are way too many of us in our assembly rank and file that end the verse after the phrase, leave your gift. That is not a compliment. That is an indictment. That is not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that we go and we deal with this issue that's between us because issues that are between each other have a direct uh, negative effect on the type of relationship and offering, spiritual offering, that we would make towards God in heaven. 
Now, that can happen between a husband and a wife. That can happen between a parent and a child and a child to a parent. That can happen between a brother and a sister and a sister and a brother. That can happen on multiple levels and in multiple dimensions. I have every, every, almost every child in my home has a, has a phone. Do you know why I have that? So I can text them just before meeting starts. You know, I didn't really respond to you the right way. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? You should see our phones burning just before the breaking of bread. I say it facetiously, of course, but it does happen, I might add. You see, this quality of spiritual sacrifices demands that we recognize that there are some issues that, cannot, that should not be tolerated. And as much as it is possible within you, you be at peace with all men. Yes, I understand there is a problem. And maybe that other brother doesn't want to, to write it with you. We get that. That's okay. You've gone as much as possible. You've tried to make peace with that other brother. The key is not so much the activity as the key is in the heart. God, I do not want to offer this with tainted stains of bitterness upon my fingers. I will go and deal with this before my brother today. And I know exactly what that's like. I have to ask the Lord, Lord, I'm scared to death and I don't want to move out of this spot. Can't we just pretend it didn't happen? Can't Can't you just do that little forgetting thing, you know? Not remember it anymore. Can we do that here? And the answer is no. The answer is that God wants us to have a real sense of transparency and unhypocriticalness when it comes to spiritual sacrifices. I want you to turn with me to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Brother Keith, I promise it'll just be a minute. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Now, I recognize that most or some would use that verse and say, see, we should lift up, whole, we should lift up our hands in prayer. And I would say to you that you probably can make a case for that from the Old Testament, but I don't think you could make a case for that from this verse. Because I would suggest to you that the emphasis is not upon the hands, it's upon the holy. Look at what it says again. It says, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Why would you say the emphasis is on holy, the purity, the separation part? Because of the next phrase, without wrath and doubting. I don't know about you, but I look at my hands, wrath and doubting, right? No, that's not what he's talking about. That's hermeneutically insane. What he's saying is, I want you to come to me, and if you, were, if you were to present yourself in that manner, I want there to be no wrath, none of that bitter, hypocritical-like lifestyle that, that, that erodes our, our communication. And I want you to come without the doubting, meaning I want you to come in faith. That's in that John 14 passage. I want you to come knowing that when you address me as Father, I intend to listen. Do you understand that when you go to the closet of prayer, there's only one other person in that room? It's the Father. And He intends to listen and answer you openly. The only reason why the Father's in the closet with you is so He can listen to you and do what you're requesting. I don't know what you think, but as a priest, we got it really good. Really good. My children come to me, even my own children. They have to knock on the door. They have to look, catch my eye, except for Gracie. She gets in free. 
and they, and they have to they have to give me the come on, come in. And if mama catches him, she go, no, no, not not right now. Daddy's busy. So I'm like, they gotta have a a a, a couple of of three weeks notice to get into my office, right? Not with your heavenly father. He's already made the appointment to meet with you and he doesn't want it to be done in such a way that there is sin-stained hands involved. Beloved, I think what we want to realize is that spiritual sacrifices requires a real sense of transparency before the living God. I think we want to understand that that takes a great deal of self-examination. Oh, that's it. Self-examination. Isn't that part of the breaking of the bread? Isn't that part of the injunctions given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Yes, it is. That's self-examination. And it says, now you examine yourself and then partake. Don't wallow in your, in your feelings of inadequacy because guess what? You've always been inadequate, but I never see you that way. I want you to come and welcome to my company in my arms because I see you differently now, as our brother, as our brother had said yesterday. And thus we have this great, this great time with our Savior. Oh, we have to stop here. But spiritual sacrifices demands that we think from a spiritual perspective. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open the Scriptures. We just ask you to allow your Spirit to take the the paint, the oil of God's Word, and place it on our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.